Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the final episode of Muller She Wrote for 2021. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. I have a great show for you today. First, I'll be chatting with the amazing Asha Rangappa about her latest piece at Cafe.com about how the Justice Department needs to pursue obstruction charges against Trump outlined in Volume 2 of the Mueller Report. Uh, we have an executive order I want to talk about by Biden on battling transnational organized crime as well as differences between the Biden and Obama administrations about how to deal with Russia as it relates to our ally, Ukraine. Uh, We have some Flynn news, including how terrible his lawyers are. We have a letter from the chairman of the House Judiciary to the Department of Justice Inspector General, and some schadenfreude involving Durham and his floundering investigation into the oranges of the Russia probe. Uh, I'll also have sabotage and, of course, the Fantasy Indictment League. We do have a lot to get to, so let's jump in with just the facts. First up, the new executive order from President Joe Biden, quote, by the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, I hereby order as follows, man. Section one, purpose. Transactional organized crime, TOC, poses a direct and escalating threat to public health, public safety and national security. Transnational criminal organizations engage in a broad range of criminal activities, including drug and weapons trafficking, migrant smuggling, human trafficking, cybercrime, intellectual property theft, money laundering, wildlife and timber trafficking, illegal fishing, and illegal mining. These networks continue to expand in size and influence the U.S. and abroad. Transnational criminal organizations contribute directly to tens of thousands of drug overdose deaths in the U.S. each year and adversely affect American communities and economic prosperity. They also threaten U.S. national security by degrading the security and stability of allied and partner nations. Now, undermining the rule of law, fostering corruption, acting as proxies for hostile state activities, directly or indirectly funding insurgent and terrorist groups, hmm. depleting natural resources, harming human health and the environment, contributing to climate change through illegal deforestation and logging, and exploiting and endangering vulnerable populations. In some regions, transnational criminal organizations wield state-like capabilities, disregarding sovereign borders, compromising the integrity of democratic institutions, and threatening the legitimacy of fragile governments, and securing their power through intimidation, corruption, and violence. For these reasons, it is in the national interest of the U.S. to counter TOC. Addressing TOC requires a coordinated federal framework, accompanied by a cohesive whole-of-government effort executed in collaboration with state, local, tribal, territorial, and civil society partners in the United States, and in close coordination with foreign partners, international and regional organizations, and international and local civil society groups abroad. Policy. 
Section 2. Executive departments and agencies shall take actions within their respective authorities, including as appropriate through the provision of technical and financial assistance, to enhance efforts to counter TOC. It's the policy of the United States to A, employ authorized intelligence and operational capabilities in an integrated manner to target, disrupt, degrade transnational criminal organizations that pose the greatest threat to national security, B, collaborate with private entities and international multilateral and bilateral organizations to combat transnational organized crime, while also strengthening cooperation with and advancing efforts to build capacity in partner nations to reduce transnational criminal activity. C, improve information sharing between law enforcement entities and the intelligence community to enhance strategic analysis of and efforts to combat transnational criminal organizations and their activities, while also preserving our ability to speedily bring TOC actors to justice. D, expand tools and capabilities to combat illicit finance, which underpins all TOC activities. And E, develop and deploy new technologies to identify and disrupt existing and newly emerging TOC threats. Section 3, Establishments. There shall be established a United States Council on Transnational Organized Crime, USCTOC, which shall report to the president through an assistant to the president for national security affairs. The USCTOC shall monitor the production and implementation of coordinated strategic plans for the whole of government, counter TOC efforts in support of and in alignment with policy priorities established by the president through National Security Council. So priorities through National Security Council, we're creating a new position. Your position is to coordinate with all the law enforcement and all the agencies about them combating TOC, and you report it to me. The U.S. TOC shall replace the Threat Mitigation Working Group, previously directed to lead a whole-of-government effort on TOC under Executive Order uh, 13773 of 2017, enforcing federal law with respect to transnational criminal organizations and preventing international trafficking. Accordingly, Section 3 of Executive Order uh, 13773, 13773, Trump's, your, Trump, your thing is revoked. Uh, now, the USCTOC shall consist of the following members. Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General, Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Director for National Intelligence. Ooh, it's like a super group. It's like Temple of the Dog, but for national security. The USCTOC may request other agencies to contribute to their efforts as necessary. They shall meet no later than 60 days from this date. Uh, there shall be established a strategic division, an interagency working group housed by the Department of Justice, comprising personnel from agencies designated above. That division shall produce coordinated strategic plans for a whole-of-government counter-TOC efforts. you got to come up with the plans. Division shall be chaired by a senior official from the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security, you pick, the chairperson shall serve a two-year term. The attorney general and the secretary of Homeland Security or their designees shall alternate every two years, selecting the chairperson. So first, Garland gets to pick. Then the, the DHS guy gets to pick. And then they just go back and forth every two years. That's nice. The division shall be established for administrative purposes within the DOJ. And the DOJ shall, to the extent permitted by law and subject to the availability of appropriations, provide administrative support and funding for the division. So this is your baby, DOJ. Agencies designated above uh, are hereby directed, consistent with their authorities, budget priorities, and mission constraints, 
and to the extent permitted by law and consistent with the need to protect intelligence and law enforcement sources, methods, and operations, and investigations, to provide the Division A, details or assignments of personnel, B, relevant information such as research, intel, and analysis, uh, C, other such resources and assistance as the Division may request, um, and then, of course, to the extent permitted by law, agencies listed above are encouraged to detail or assign their employees to the division on a non-reimbursable basis. Uh, the division, within 120 days of this date, shall submit to the USCTOC, USCTOC a report describing a process that they can implement on an ongoing basis. Get your, get your plans ready. Have it for us by 120 days from now. Section 4, report. The DNI, within 120 days of today, shall submit a report to the president through the assistant to the president for national security affairs assessing the IC's posture with respect to TOC-related collection efforts, including recommendations on resource allocation and prioritization. Then Section 5 is definitions, where they talk about what the words in this document mean. Every government document has, <laughs> has a definitions section, in case you didn't get it. And then the, the general provisions, which is the legalese, nothing in this order shall be construed to impair the authority granted by law. We, nothing here says you can break the law or go against policy, etc. It'll be implemented consistent with applicable law and the, the budget availability. And this order is not intended to and does not create any right or benefit, substantive or procedural, enforceable at law or in equity by any party against the United States, its departments, agencies, or entities, officers, employees, agents, or any other person. And that is the new plan to get a plan on how to combat transnational organized crime. Very cool. Next up, Jerry Nadler, chairman of the judiciary in the House, has sent the following letter to the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Dear Inspector General Horowitz, last year, I wrote you to request that you investigate the use of force by federal law enforcement against Americans exercising their right to peaceably assemble. You undertook that investigation without delay, and I understand the work is ongoing. Because of recent troubling reports, I write today to request that your review include an examination of the surveillance practices of certain federal agencies during the national protest activity that began in May 2020 and continues to this day. That's the George Floyd protests. According to a December 22, 2021 report, agents of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI infiltrated First Amendment-protected protests in Portland, Oregon. That's Trump's FBI and Department of Homeland Security. The FBI, according to sources, quote, set up extensive surveillance operations inside Portland's protest movement with agents standing shoulder to shoulder with activists. This surveillance operation allegedly included agents from both the FBI and DHS involved in plainclothes law enforcement, dressing in all black to match protesters and infiltrate the crowd. I ask that your office, as part of its review initiated by the July 19, 2020 letter I wrote, request instances in which federal law enforcement used tactics like these to surveil citizens engaged in First Amendment protected activity. From May 2020 to the present, I request you identify and review the locations where these similar surveillance efforts took place and the length, breadth, and scope of the operations. I also ask you review <clears throat> the authorizing processes within the Department of Justice that allow such operations to take place, including a review of whether the political motivations of particular protests impact federal law enforcement response. Hmm. 
Finally, I ask that you examine what actions law enforcement took during these surveillance operations, including but not limited to assistance with arrests, video footage, and intelligence gathering. I look forward to seeing the results of your investigation into the use of force and surveillance operations against Americans engaging in peaceful protests. I thank you for your prompt attention to this important matter. Wow. They didn't do that during January 6th, did they? And when the U.S. intelligence community first picked up signs in the fall that Russia could be preparing a new attack on Ukraine, President Joe Biden directed his administration to act and fast. Wary of repeating mistakes made in 2014 when he was the vice president, when the U.S. and Europe were caught off guard by the annexation of Crimea, Biden directed his national security team to use every tool possible to try to deter Putin while a possible invasion was still assessed to be several months away. Quote, what we've been doing is very calculated, uh, but we only have about a four-week window from now to pull it off. The response began with a flurry of intense diplomatic activity in early fall, including a trip by CIA Director Bill Burns to Moscow to warn Putin directly against attacking Ukraine. But as Russian troops continued to amass near Ukraine's border, the quiet diplomacy quickly evolved into a stark public warning to Putin to back down or face harsh sanctions and increased U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Top Biden officials are now emphasizing that the consequences would go above and beyond anything Russia faced in 2014. In contrast, the options on the table now would be overwhelming, immediate, and inflict significant cost on the Russian economy and their financial system. The intelligence community came under fire in 2014 when Biden was vi uh, vice president over what some lawmakers said was a failure to predict Russia's incursion into Crimea until it was too late. And after that attack, Biden's push to arm Ukraine and impose extremely severe sanctions on Russia was largely overruled by Obama. Now in charge, Biden has wanted to do things very differently. Quote, this administration has been much more proactive, and there is more of a realistic sense now that Putin is capable of absorbing a lot of pain in an effort to impose costs on the U.S. and our allies. That was uh, Tom Malinowski, Democratic rep from New Jersey, who served as the State Department's senior most human rights official in 2014. Now, that has resulted in a far more robust intelligence sharing operation with Ukraine about Russia's planning than anything that occurred in 2014. Partly because Ukrainian government is a more reliable partner now than it was then, <laughs> said one former NATO official. And partly because Biden firmly believes Ukraine cannot be left out of any discussions that concern its future. Yeah, wise. All right, I'll be right back with Asha Rangappa to discuss the Mueller obstruction roadmap right after this. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Дамы и господа, это Prevail. И ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar and this is Prevail. There's a goal here, which is to make sure that Vladimir Putin not only stays in power, but that they're allowed to continue stealing. When you look at Brexit and you say, what might have also happened when Leah was being interrogated? Sort of like Brexit. <laughs> a bunch of confused people following orders, really having no idea what they were doing. Tax avoidance on that level is only serving the interests, frankly, of a lot of mobsters and corrupt governments. The inherent question is, is Maria Butina a spy? And Maria Butina was in charge of espionage. So that's a difficult place to start to begin with. Those intangibles that those people want to have, we can't take advantage of that in dealing with Russia and China and Iran. If we can't do that, then you know what? Maybe we don't deserve to continue. Prevail with Greg Oliar every Friday. 
Everybody, welcome back. Happy today and honored today to be joined by my friend, former FBI special agent, uh, Asha Rangappa. Asha, how are you? Good, Allison. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while. It's I'm happy to talk to you today. I know. I feel like I, I feel like we've been in touch on Twitter. Yeah, but it's yeah. not the same. It's not the same at all. We need to have wine and fries soon. Totally. Uh, so you did this great piece for for Cafe.com. Uh, you've been talking about this for a while. I've been talking about it for, you know, I do weekly tweets to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office <laughs> about the beautiful, fabulous, delightful, eloquent volume two of the Mueller report that just lays perfectly uh, the roadmap, uh, which is a very, very short roadmap, by the way, it's a very short map to prosecute or indict or at least consider obstruction of justice charges uh, for, for the former president. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your piece uh, for Cafe.com? Yeah, my piece makes the affirmative case for prosecuting Trump. And I lay out some of the arguments that I have seen made against prosecuting Trump. And I think to rewind even just a little bit, it feels like some of the enthusiasm for prosecuting Trump for obstruction has just waned uh, because the Mueller report feels like a long time ago. You know, obstruction just feels like, you know, oh, what's a little obstruction when he tried to overthrow the government? It feels like there's just more pressing, urgent things. And that's I, I get the sense that it's sort of like, oh, that ship has sailed. Um, but in terms of the legal arguments, what I've seen is, well, it's just it's it was it's going to be too hard to convince a jury because Trump is going to be able to create reasonable doubt in all of these different ways. Uh, he's going to be able to mount constitutional defenses that are really complicated. And it's always bad to try to you know test these in court. And it would mainly be really bad to try to prosecute him and lose because that would appear as though the Department of Justice was trying to just go after political opponents of the current administration. And, and we don't wanna set that kind of norm. And so my piece really says, okay, well, let's accept all of those as true. And by the way, I, I make sure to emphasize that the inability to get to convince a jury, I don't think is, based on the sufficiency of the evidence, which is ample. And at the time of the Mueller report, 400 federal prosecutors signed a letter saying, if he were any other person, the Department of Justice would have charged him a long time ago. Mm. So I don't think it's about the sufficiency of the evidence. Um, and I wanna make that clear. It's not that charges aren't warranted. It's all about you know whether you could actually secure a conviction. And, and my piece just basically says, okay, let's, let's assume that you can't. Actually, there are still important values that we vindicate by prosecuting him, nevertheless. And, you know, among these are number one, that you emphasize that no one is above the law. Number two, that it's especially important to, to make sure we hold the president accountable for obstruction of justice precisely because he has this powerful constitutional authority to enforce the law. We need to make clear the line between a faithful execution of those laws and corrupt ones. And finally, that 
you know, we ensure legitimacy, our, our faith in the legitimacy of the justice system when we show that the administration of justice is independent and that we bring the prosecuting, the very act of bringing the prosecution demonstrates that the president is still a person who must ab abide by the law. And, and we showed this in, in the impeachment proceedings, I think. Um, you right. know, we, we knew he wasn't going to be convicted and removed, but I think in both cases, it was really important to bring that, to have that process take place just as a line in the sand. And if nothing else, then to leave a precedent for the future and make it clear that these, um, you know, these are impeachable offenses. So I can go into detail about all of those arguments, but that's essentially where, you know, what my my piece is about. And this might be something I don't know. I do know that the rules of federal criminal procedure require that you consider that you have to obtain and maintain a conviction on appeal before you indict somebody. Does that include considerations of how you think the jury will feel in a, spe in a specific jurisdiction? I mean, I, I feel like that rule is there for whether or not it will hold up under law, not whether or not it'll hold up under what a jury kind of feels that week. And secondly, and what rule, what rule are you referring to? Um, where you, if you're going to indict somebody, you have to be able to obtain and maintain a conviction. Like that's a you consideration. Mean the, you mean the internal justice department policy, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the justice department policy is that the evidence needs to be sufficient to be able to convince an unbiased jury, like an unbiased jury viewing the evidence objectively would find it sufficient to convict. Yes, okay. and it's not, you know, so, and, and there's actually a piece in there that says, when you have a very popular defendant or someone who, you know, uh, en engenders a lot of emotion, the fact that you may not be able to secure a conviction because of, you know, some of these subjective factors, right? Because it's a very popular person and, and, and biases may come into play is not a reason okay. not to bring charges. That's my question. It, yeah. It's about the, and that's kind of what I was saying is, you know, the, the arguments I was hearing from very, you know, people I respect a lot and I think, you know, are, are being thoughtful about it was, you know, you need to have a slam dunk case airtight all the way around. And one of the points I make in, my piece is, here's a newsflash. It's not just that it would be hard to convict Trump for obstruction of justice. It would be hard to convict any former president of any crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about it. I mean, imagine if, you know, whether it was George W. or Bill Clinton or, you know, Jimmy Carter. I mean, that's always going to be an uphill battle because the president is a larger than life figure. And, you know, you just don't know how a jury is going to see it. And he's going to be able to make a persuasive and compelling case about being persecuted. And there's always going to be entanglements with constitutional defenses, you know? Um, so I just don't think that in this kind of case, that should be the standard. No, I just too many I variables. I agree. And, and I think also, I think what people might be concerned with, I'm not one of these people, but this is something else I've heard because you said, you know, you could lose because it's hard to bring a case against the president. It's, I think it's an airtight case as it stands. Um, but I mean, there are 
I am not a lawyer and there are tons of variables, like you said. Um, Just looking at that chart, though, of all the elements met for specific Mm -hmm. things looks pretty airtight to me. And we got McGann's testimony to back it up and verify it. But anyway, um, whole whole different show. Um, I I just don't see that. I, I mean, I guess a lot of people are concerned of if we if you do lose, if you do bring it. And you do lose because you get one juror holdout who's a huge Trump supporter in D.C. somewhere. Uh, then is that worse to not bring it or to bring it and lose? And I, I'm in the it's worse to not bring it camp. I think it's worse to not bring it. And especially for this particular crime, because as I say in the piece, this is the crime <laughs> That every president, you know, any corrupt president that, you know, whatever shenanigans they're going to engage in. Given their power over the executive branch, they're they will try to obstruct it because they they can or they will try to, you know, they think they have the influence and power to do it. It's, it's their uh, law enforcement agencies. And so it's almost the most important crime to to bring because it's really about vindicating the idea that the administration of justice is independent, you know, and that that is such a building block of our democracy and the rule of law that just asserting that principle and saying we are going to fight for it wherever those chips may fall, um, I think is important. And, you know, juries are fickle. People know that we've all seen OJ and we saw Kyle Rittenhouse and all the stuff. People get that and people will be outraged and there may be ways in which they get, you know, jaded. But I think people people respect a righteous prosecution. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and we're coming up on the statute of limitations, as you mentioned, at least the first ones popping off in February with the um, the Flynn discussions as far as you know the russia thing and pressure taken off and just recently was on tv saying boy i'm glad i fired that comey boy because i wouldn't be sitting here right now there'd be no book there'd be no anything like wow he just admitted it right out in public so we are running out of time for for the dc u.s attorney who i think would have jurisdiction in this case to to bring these prosecutions yeah, and I just, you know, what kind of message do we send? Yeah. When we, you know, we're supposed to be a model for the rest of the world on the rule of law. We go around, we lecture people about that and, you know, we we go and lecture countries where it's actually really dangerous to try to do to try to hold a public leader accountable. You know, people put their lives on the line to try to investigate a head of state or you know, um, prosecute them. We have the ability to do it. We have the ability to show there is a way for the administration of justice to be independent to and, and to say that no man is above the law. Um, I don't think that that principle needs, like, I, I think that we strengthen democracy even if we lose by bringing the prosecution. That's my bottom line. Yeah, the message and I is think, sent. We won't stand for it. You're not above the law. Correct. Don't care if you're the president. And it also creates a deterrent effect for future presidents. Yeah. Right? I mean, it says, Hopefully, guess what? Yeah. You try to pull this and it we you will be investigated and it will uh, be brought to light. And I think, you know, the public really needs a, an accounting of this um, in a way that is clearer and more <laughs> public than, you know, the Mueller report, which as I also point out in the piece, nobody read. 
except for a lot of lawyers. I saw that. I saw that. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, and indictments are a really powerful way of doing that, of telling the story and of leaving a historical record of putting all the evidence together. Um, That's my view. Yeah, no, I agree. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Everybody check it out at cafe.com. Everybody follow Asha Rangappa on Twitter. And of course, we can see you talking head all the time on our favorite cable news networks. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Asha. Thank you. All right, everybody. It's time for Sabotage. And Mike Flynn is in hot water again and again. Um, Michael Flynn has swiftly lost his bid in court to block a possible House Select Committee subpoena for his phone records and hold off demands that he speak to the panel investigating January 6th. The ruling Wednesday comes one day after he asked a federal judge in Florida for a temporary restraining order. And it's the first quick response to a lawsuit from a House witness after several went to court to try to invalidate the committee and block the House from pursuing their phone records. So far, 11 others for whom the committee has subpoenaed phone records have sued. Overall, the House has already spoken to dozens of witnesses and requested more than 100 people's phone records. While the lawsuit uh, to challenge the House, while all of them are gaining attention, they've revealed that the committee appears to be notching many successful interviews about the pro-Trump rally and its high-profile right-wing participants and the insurrection on January 6th, and that they're likely to receive large amounts of call log data from Verizon and AT&T, and they probably have them already. Flynn went to court on Tuesday, just a day after he was scheduled to testify, in what appeared to be an attempt to hold off the consequences of his failure to appear, as well as any other fact-finding by the panel. District Judge Mary Scriven in Tampa, GW appointee, said in the decision that Flynn didn't meet the procedural requirements to make, to make his case. And he could refile in the future uh, or allow his request to play out on a longer schedule in court. Flynn had sought help from the judge by Thursday, And at this time, the dates were unclear as to when Flynn needed to turn over documents to the committee and appear for a deposition, and it wasn't known if his phone records had actually been subpoenaed. Flynn, in his complaint, had told the judge he was initially in talks with the committee and was beginning to preserve and collect documents to share with them. The committee agreed to delay his deposition, setting it for Monday. But Scriven noted the document deadline passed weeks ago, in November, and the committee was planning to push back the deposition again to a date to be determined. The judge said Flynn hasn't provided the court any relevant evidence about his communications with the committee. Quote, Flynn has not, however, provided any information about the date by which the select committee currently expects him to produce documents. Thus, on this record, there's no basis to conclude that Flynn will face immediate and irreparable harm before the defendants have an opportunity to respond. Now, Flynn said he told the committee he planned to assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and was going to court instead of appearing in person. In the lawsuit, he outlines how his failure to appear for testimony might be a sticking point with the committee, believing it could lead the House to vote to hold him in contempt. Flynn has long faced tribulations in court (laughs) since he lied in 2017 to the FBI and Mike Pence while serving as National Security Advisor in the Trump White House. He lost his job over the episode. He pleaded guilty twice in federal court to making false statements, but was pardoned by Trump near the end of his administration and became a public voice in right-wing circles, touting an absolute nonsense conspiracy theories so we'll see what happens there but it doesn't look good for him all right i have a little present for you it's time for a little schadenfreude Schadenfreude. all right this is this is just fun uh kevin kleinsmith he was the fbi lawyer who pled guilty to altering an email about the informant status of one carter page 
after being indicted by Durham. He was indicted by Durham for changing that email. Well, he's been restored as a member in good standing by the District of Columbia Bar. <laughs> so he got his law license back. It was suspended for a little while. It was supposed to be suspended for a year. It was suspended for five months. He petitioned to get it reinstated earlier, and they said, sure. Suck it, Durham. All right, time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm going to be indicted! Hold it, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted! All right, for the Fantasy Indictment League, I'm going to put Trump back on my team. I think an indictment from the Manhattan DA's office could come soon. In one week, Vance will leave office, and the new DA will come in. Uh, now, really, the whole thing's kind of being run by former U.S. Attorney Pomerantz and some of the prosecutors from the New York Attorney General's office. But he is the figurehead there, and he said long ago he would make a charging decision before he left office, though that was a while ago. He hasn't changed that statement, but I don't know that he was expecting to need to impanel a second special grand jury that will go on until April of next year, but we'll see. And then I'm going to keep Rudy, Tonesing, and Geneva. And then I'm going to keep Gates, Engels, and L.A. Key in Florida, in the Middle District. And I'm going to add a rando tax fraud real estate scheme indictment from the Middle District of Florida. There have been two that have come out in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if they're related to what's going on in the Gates-Greenberg investigation. I just find that a little weird. So I think there might be another one. And uh, a Tom Barrick plea agreement. We'll do that. And let's, uh, you know, Ivanka. Why not? For the holidays. As you know, I'm off this week, but it's... Like I said, it is a holiday. It might be slow. It might be slow news week. There's usually an indictment when I take vacation. The last time it was the Weisel Weiselberg Trump Organization and Tom Barrick. We'll see what happens. I'm not sure. It is a holiday, so it might be quiet. But So we might not see anything. But I do have Daily Beans content for you this week, starting tomorrow, with an interview with Stephanie Winston Walkoff. She's the one who wrote the book Melania and Me. You don't want to miss it. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. W Media.